You're listening to Dynamo's Dozen. With your host, Ian the Dynamo Kelly. This week's episode of Dynamo's Dozen. Um, it is with a heavy heart on this episode that we uh, pay respects to the late, great, um, legendary, and the word legend is thrown around so freely these days, but legend truly does describe Harley Race, the King Harley Race. Um, I just wish my condolences to uh, to him, his family, his son Leland, who has a uh, Obviously, been on the show a number of times before, as has Harley, and I'll never forget what they did for me. So, um, rest in peace, one of the greats, Harley Race. But moving on to today's show, I had the pleasure to catch up with one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. That's right, the one and only Magnum TA. I announced it last week on the show with Mr. Damian Corbin that Magnum TA would be coming on an episode of Dynamo's Dozen. And this week, we got to talk. It was unreal. The guy is as sharp as a knife. He is absolutely spot on in his um, in his memory of, of, of pretty much all of his time in wrestling. Pretty much spot on with his analysis of the current uh, state of wrestling as well. Um, an absolute legend. And he is here today to tell his story. And uh, without further ado, let's get straight into it. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Magnum T.A. So here I am um, <clears throat> with one of my absolute favorite wrestlers of all time. It is both a privilege and an honor um, for for this man to uh, to take the time to speak with me today. This has been in the in the works for a very very long time. I think uh, it was both a combination of luck, but also a combination of maybe me hounding this guy into submission to the point that he decided he would do it. So. Uh, Welcome to Dynamo's Dozen. <laughs> Welcome to Dynamo's Dozen. Hey, it's a ple- Mr. Magnum it's TA. It's my pleasure to be Yeah, my pleasure. How how are you, sir? You you're sounding good. I, well, thank you. I'm I'm doing well. Uh I'm a I'm a dad of seven kids that are almost all grown up except for our last two uh twins who are 11 years old and getting ready to start middle school here uh the end of the month so uh so life is always busy at the allen house wow seven kids that's 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 a that's a high number i like it that's very old school (laughs) well i am old school that's a fact (laughs) well that's that's for sure that's for sure it's funny um because I'm, I'm, you know, I've been uh, in in the build up, obviously, to this to this interview. I mean, pretty much anybody that knows me will tell you that I, I watch a, a Magnum TA uh, feud once every month or two, anyway. So I kind of try and find as much um, 
as much video as I can from all feuds, whether it be with, you know, with Ric Flair, whether it be Nikita Koloff and stuff like that. So, um, I'm always kind of well up on on your stuff, regardless. So, anyone that knows me knows that it, this is a. Uh, this is something that I've been looking forward to quite a while, but let's kind of go back to to the beginning, I guess, because um, <clears throat> you mentioned that your most recent birthday, you were sixty years young. Um, hey, that's correct. We're both uh, we're both Gemini's, so let's hope that we can uh, keep the one personality for this for this interview. And uh, I think we, I think we can pull it off. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um. But you 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 started your career well. I mean, officially, you started your career back in 1978, if I'm correct. Um, Actually, it wasn't until uh, 1980. I graduated high school in 1977, and I I wrestled uh, two years. Well, one my freshman year of college, uh, and which would have been in. Uh, in 78 and then 79, I started training to, uh, with the idea that I was going to go into wrestling, but I didn't actually break in my first match until, uh, 1980. Okay. Okay. So you broke, you, you, you started training back in 1978. Is that correct? I, I was just lifting weights and working out. Well, I didn't, I wasn't training in the ring or anything, but I was just trying to build myself up. I was actually working uh, security, bouncing in, in nightclubs in Virginia Beach, Virginia, while I was going to Old Dominion University in, in Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, that's where I, 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 I first met some of the wrestlers like uh, Greg Valentine and, and uh, Ricky Steamboat and different guys that were coming into the nightclubs that I was working in after they wrestled in uh, Norfolk Scope, which was a big arena in my hometown. And it was that relationships that developed that kind of uh, opened my eyes to the potential of what, what I could accomplish if I was able to be successful in the world of wrestling. So were you a wrestling fan beforehand? Was this was this something that like you had kind of grown up wanting to be, or was it something that it kind of it was happenstance or... When I was a kid, when I was young, my earliest memories of TV were watching wrestling with my with my dad. Sure. And I loved it then when I was when I was young and and a young boy, and you know, I used to you know, like I said, imagine being able to bounce around the ring and do all these things these guys that were like superheroes to me were able to do. And then in high school, I started wrestling amateur collegiate style, and that took my focus kind of away from watching professional wrestling so much because I was completely engrossed with trying to be the best collegiate uh, wrestler that I could be. Sure. And uh, Dan Gable Dan Gable was my hero back then. He, he of course, was he won the gold medal for the United States. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, back in, back, in, back in the 70s. And so he was like, you know, my role model. And I was, uh, I ended up winning the state tournament in, in Virginia back in 1977 at 167 pounds and was, uh, had dieted and cut weight, you know, basically my entire life growing up for wrestling. And it wasn't until I, I turned like 19 and it was after my freshman year of college that I started working out heavy with weights to try to build size and, and, you know, see, you know, what, how much muscle I could carry on my frame. And I went from like 170 
to about 215 in like six months, crazy short period of time, just because my body was just starved for like, you know, just really good nutrition. And I just changed my whole, uh, outlook. And it was, uh, and and so like my next mentor was like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I I had that great big encyclopedia of bodybuilding book that he wrote. And, and, uh, and I I went on this crazy 10,000 calorie a day diet for a year solid. And I, and I, like I said, I gained, I gained like this insane amount of weight and size, but I still wasn't big enough to be like a collegiate heavyweight because the 215, the heavyweights were, were generally like 240, 250 pounds. Really? So my, yeah. So my college coach, you know, wanted me to go back down to one, 170 and I, 167. And I said, nah, I'm, I'm, I've got a taste for, you know, what I could do with some size now. And, and so I, I lost interest in college at that point and just trained for another solid year trying to beef up my, beef my body up even more, uh, with the idea of, of breaking in the game of, uh, you know, pro wrestling. So, you know, it changed my whole career path basically, uh, you know, in a nanosecond when I realized that, you know, I wasn't, uh, I was six foot two and I'd always been, you know, like, just lean, mean fighting machine at 167, and all of a sudden I'm, you know, 215 and growing. And I said, you know, I could, I, I then I could envision myself being big enough to do what I saw those guys doing in the ring, and and it just, you know, kind of took on a whole different motivating factor at that point for me. Awesome. And like in terms of, so you you were six two carrying around a you know a one one seventy frame, let's say. Um, you were, yeah. you were obviously pretty wide and pretty built. So your shoulders were just waiting for some meat to come on the bones. Um, absolutely. And I, I, cause I, cause I had done everything I had done had been just geared at, at the type of training you do for amateur wrestling, which has nothing to do with bulking up or lifting as heavy a weights as you can. And certainly, you know, eating the kind of calories it takes to, to feed the machine to get that big, uh, was totally counterproductive to you know, anything they preach to you in, in, in amateur wrestling. Okay. Okay. And like when you did start, uh, let's, let's transition then into, um, into professional wrestling training. Obviously you mentioned there, you met some guys like Ricky Steamboat when you were doing bouncing. Um, how did uh, how did that 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 kind of story um, begin in terms of you know obviously there was an interest there, but what what was first day of training like? Who did you train with, and and, and how did that all come about? Well, it's a it's a very, I have a very bizarre story. So I actually never went through a training camp. I never went went in trained but one time in the ring before my first match no and <laughs> yeah so i i broke i broke in in portland oregon and i had i had developed this relationship with a guy named buzz sawyer sure and buzz was buzz was uh quite the character wrestled on a host in of uh, levels, florida uh, he 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 was just an interesting guy. I don't know if you've ever. I'm sure you watched his work yeah. at some point in time. But he was he was an outstanding performer. But he was but he was he was a very interesting character outside the ring. And uh, so to make a long story short, uh, I had followed him across the country 
to Portland, Oregon, because he had uh, told me that he would help me get in the business. And I hadn't, like I said, I had never gone one time. I'd never stepped foot in a wrestling ring. And he and I and Princess Victoria and his little brother all went down to the, the bowling alley, which was where they had the ring set up, where they f- filmed in Portland for Don Owens. And I worked out in the ring for about two hours. I learned how to tie up, learned how to take a tackle, give a tackle, hit the ropes, take a backdrop, do all these things I've never done before in one session. And then the next day, I worked with Buzz on live television. Holy shit. Worked a match with him. <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, he had told Don that I'd been in the business like six months. And and I never told anybody any different. So I worked with him on TV and we had and we actually had a decent match. And it was my first match ever in the business. And then I I uh I worked seven days a week from that moment on and never stopped. So every night I was on the job training. And I was when I was breaking. Uh, Dutch Savage was the booker, and he didn't know any. He wasn't any smarter to the fact that I never worked. And uh, so, so like the Barbarian, he was he had just started. That was his first territory. He was wrestling with Tonga John back then, and uh, like all these all these cast of characters that I'd never met before in my life. All of a sudden, I'm I'm driving up and down the road and learning live. Uh, in the ring, school of hard knocks every night, learning the business. Wow! And like in turn, that's crazy. So like you, you, you know, you kayfabed the bookers at a time when, you yeah, know, yeah, 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 hundred percent. Like at a time totally. when, was that? Yeah, you could never do. You could never do that today. It could never happen today. What happened back then? No. I mean, you know, it just wouldn't be possible. But but it's it's a crazy it's it's a really interesting story because like it's it seems like it shouldn't have happened back then either, <laughs> especially back no then. It, it should no and and to be able to pull it off and so I worked in Don's territory for six months, seven days a week, no days off, and uh, uh, sometimes like for for uh, in some of the towns uh, I'd help set the ring up, I'd work a match. I'd referee a couple of matches. I mean, I did it all. I did every single thing you could do to try to learn what to do in this game of wrestling. And I was there for six months, and then it really wasn't I, – I, I didn't like the, the area. I liked the territory. I liked the people. But it rains like, you know, like year-round in, in uh, Portland. I mean, it's just a rainy, rainy place. So I wanted to move on to another place, and now I am seasoned, and now people know me. And uh, I got booked uh, for Joe Blanchard down in in uh, uh, San Antonio in his his little place, and so I, I leave there and go down to, to work for Joe. And uh, again, you know, now I, I I at least know what I know the difference in a you know, a headlock and a wristwatch. I didn't know the difference in anything, but, but, you know, at least I knew, I knew the terms that I knew when people called a spot. In I'll tell ring. you how funny this, this is. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was, I was, I had only been in the business like two weeks 
And Gene Kaninsky was, you know, a world champion back, back in the day. And they booked me with Gene in Seattle, Washington. And Gene was a big, rough, rugged guy, even when he was older. Yeah. And he picked me up, he picked me up, he drops me behind him, and he tells me, he tells me to roll him up. I didn't know what a roll up was. <laughs> he, wanted me to put, he wanted me to push him into the ropes and roll him up, which of course we all know now. But you know, there two weeks in, you know, I belly the back suplexed him on his head. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'm out there, all the people are screaming and hollering, and I didn't know what to do, so I just did what I knew I could do, and I dropped him on his head, and, and he and he laughed. You know, he did, he did, you know, you know, he didn't think I was trying to stretch him or anything, but he didn't have anything to do with the bump. I just gave it to him. You know, I just, <laughs> he landed just, safely, safe as houses. <laughs> yeah, and he, yeah, and he landed safely. He didn't get killed, and it was all good. But, you know, those were the kind of things that happen when, you know, you don't know the lingo, you don't know the term. I remember the first time somebody laying out a finish and somebody telling me to drop the fall. And I wonder, what's drop a fall? What does that mean? What am I going to, am I going to drop off of a building on somebody? <laughs> what does a fall mean? <laughs> you know? And, uh, it, it, I mean, it was some funny, funny stuff in retrospect looking back now. Uh, I don't, I really don't know how it all it was just a whirlwind of activity especially that first year and you know going over to joe's and working there and and and, uh you know that was just my every day was an education the people that i met uh people took a liking to me they helped me they they gave me great advice you know told me uh you know things that were good things that weren't good um, you know, really molded my 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 journey uh, almost every day that I went out and got in the ring. Awesome. And like in terms of uh, like, so when you started off, what were you calling yourself? And then how did the name Magnum TA? Come I was just Terry. No, well, yeah. So yeah, there was nobody knew Magnum TA. I didn't even know that that name didn't exist at that time. So sure. when I had first, so when I had when I was in Portland. I had this big four-door Oldsmobile, yeah. great big car. And when Andre came to the territories back then, as he did, he went from place to place, you know, for like two weeks and then went somewhere else. And he rode with whoever had the biggest car. Okay. So I had a big car. So Andre, and I got to meet Andre, and, and I'm driving around this giant who's drinking beer like it's soda pop and, you know, uh, you know, uh, like 50 of them. <laughs> and we had to be friends. A so good influence, yeah. <laughs> fast so fast forward, Andre and I get to be friends in Portland. Then I I leave there. I go to uh I go to work for Joe Blanchard. I'm there for six months with Joe and I'm there with Ray Hercules Hernandez and, and Cowboy Scott Casey and um just you know, I can't Buck Robley uh, Ivan Putsky, you know, just Bruiser Brody, who was a tremendous influence for me and, and helped me a lot. Uh, I was with that group there, but while I was there, I meet Mike Graham, who is the son of Eddie Graham, who you know, ran Florida Championship Wrestling. Sure, yeah. We become like instant buddies, like we've known each other our entire lives. He goes home, tells Eddie, "Hey, there's this, you know, good-looking, you know, young baby-faced kid, Terry Allen. We got to bring him to Florida. He'll do great here." I go to Florida. 
uh, with and, and Eddie takes me under his wing. I, I fly on the airplanes with Eddie back and forth to the towns, and Eddie watches my matches. He's in my ear every night. He's teaching me about psychology and all the things that, that are, are lost art in the business today. Sure. And he's in my ear, in my ear, and and teaching me, teaching me, teaching me like a sponge. And, and Corey Funk Jr. is the booker, and I'm getting to work with him, and Dory's a master. And Absolutely, yeah. so... After six months of that, in comes this electric, charismatic person like I've never met before, the American Dream Dusty Rhodes comes <laughs> to Florida. We meet. We almost instantly have this bond that's just very unique. And I, my my lessons keep going, but the the tell you the, the give you the the reader's digest version Andre comes back to Florida and I haven't seen him since Portland and now I've got two years of working seven nights a week in the wrestling business under my belt and I'm and I'm you know got got some promise now now I I know my way around the ring um you know I'm ready for an opportunity and and Andre and I are having a breakfast one morning, and he looks over at me, and he says, do you need a name? You need a handle. You need something people remember. He said, you look kind of like that guy on Magnum P.I. You should be Magnum T.A. He gives me the name. Awesome. He's, and he's, So he goes back. Vince Sr. was still living. He plan, his plan was to bring me to New York. Well, before he could get to New York and pull that all together, Paul Orndorff, who's work, who's a big star for Mid South, leaves to go to New York. Leaves leaves Bill Watts. There's, so now there's a big spot up, and Ernie Ladd, who's the booker, sure. who's also been watching me, calls me in the middle of the night. Says Paul Orndorff's left. There's a top spot here. It's big. It's a big money spot. It's a chance for you to be a, a main event star. Do you want it? Yes, of course I want it. So I leave with Dusty's blessing, and I go to Mid South, and that's where I take the name Magnum TA, and that's where the character was all molded and formed and and honed into what you saw on you know the tapes and the things that are out there in the history books now about Magnum. It all came together in Mid South. Wow. Uh, one one thing I'm intrigued um, with there, Magnum is 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 uh when when i hear you talk about you know you're you know working seven nights a week for two years um who do you obviously you were wrestling so many different styles and different kind of body sizes and different uh different length matches and stuff like that um who who are some of the guys you think you learned the most from in those two years before that character morphed the the ones I, I where I really really started learning the craft, besides just you know the mechanics of being able to get from the yeah. ring down to the ring, have a match, and get back to the dressing room. Yeah. When I started really learning and understanding the psychology, all happened in Florida, and and Dusty purposely tagged me up with two different guys. I was tagged with Scott McGee, 
Okay. He's yeah. from from England. His dad was Jeff Ports. Yeah. And and so Scotty and I were tag were the global tag team champions of the universe. <laughs> that was their their you know their their title in Florida. The whole and, universe. And yeah. we wrestled and we and we wrestled with the Royal Kangaroos. And those two guys were outstanding, and we would go out every night and go between 30 to 45 minutes with them every night. So some nights they would set the heat on Scotty and I'd get the hot tag. Some nights they set it on me. I'd give him a hot tag and we do, you know, whatever we're going to do. But working with those guys and learning the psychology of putting in time and, and how to learn the difference in registering something and how to sell it right and not die and how to bring the people up and down like a, like they're leading an orchestra, you know, to really get them, you know, where you want them to be. Because the, the key for to this day, whether people want to believe it or not, is for them to get the the audience vested in the characters they're watching out there in the ring, exactly. where they're part of the struggle. Yeah. They're part of the the. Oh my gosh, I want to see him, you know, come back and beat this guy. And I was always that, you know learn that fight from the bottom up baby face type style uh early on and it and it just it it got a seasoned to where when i got an opportunity to work on top and be you know working main event angles and those things where you know i'm cutting the promos and i'm doing the thing i had the i had the ring skills to go with the what I developed on the mic skills, and I can put the time in those matches in the arenas to give the tell the kind of story that made people want to come back and see it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that that makes a lot of sense. So, like, by the time that you had kind of made the transition, after two years, you were a hundred percent ready to, to to kind of play with the with, with the bigger bigger names, and, and which is exactly what you did. And, and think about it. What would a journeyman have to do today? Because back then, honestly, with as much as we were working, they never really considered somebody worth their salt until they had at least five years of experience. Yeah. And if a guy got a break after five years of working the middle and the bottom of the card, you know, and got a chance, that was considered huge. So for me to get a break after two years. Now, grant you, I probably had easily 750 to 1,000 matches under my belt when I got that break, which in today's time would take you about 20 years. <laughs> yeah, logistically, <laughs> yeah, that. for sure. You know, so it was it was a it was like riding on the tip of a lightning bolt in terms of the 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 journey and how fast it was happening in reality because. Yeah, Jim Ross and I were talking about this on a podcast a couple of years ago, and he, and he had to he couldn't wrap his head around it for a minute either. But everything that I did was all encapsulized in a six year period. It's crazy, yeah. I, yeah. I broke in in 1980, and and you know October 14th, 1986, my in the ring career was over. So it was a whole lot packed in a relatively short period of time. It's it's a crazy kind of situation when you think about it because yeah I mean it was a six year wrestling career but I mean <clears throat> anybody who knows um, wrestling and I mean wrestling not modern wrestling I'm talking about all skill wrestling knows um, that everybody from Ricky Steamboat 
to Nikita Koloff to especially considered the greatest of all time, Ric Flair. Ric Flair has said on countless times that you were basically the heir. He considered you the heir to the throne. You know what I mean? Um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and that, what, an honor, what an honor that would have been at 27 years old. Because, you know, they, they, were, they weren't looking for, you know, a two-week wonder. You know, they wanted me to carry the strap for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to have, have and get the, to, so, you know, that's something to wrap your head around. Because back then, that wasn't the decision of one man. That meant that every promoter in the country that was part of the National Wrestling Alliance yeah. had to be in agreement with making that move. And, and you know, and, and I, I mean, I was honored that, you know, I mean, the, the, all the behind-the-scenes work had happened. We'd had the meetings. They'd all talked about it amongst themselves. They had brought it to me, told me what we were going to do. And it was about to happen. And it would have been, it would have changed the wrestling landscape as you know it today because it would have been different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, w- w- we will get to that. Um, it's kind of, <clears throat> you know what I mean? It's something It's something that's always kind of been, been heavy on me as well as a fan um, because I know what it's like to kind of suffer injuries and stuff. So it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. But um, before we do get there, um, I mean, I gotta, I gotta ask you something. You, you've been around wrestling, um, at that in that period for two, three years, um, at that point, and I mean, a young wrestler too. I mean, at twenty-seven years old, as you said, you needed to have five years maybe under your belt. If you were maybe thirty-three, thirty-four, or thirty-five years old back then, you were considered a young, a young man, in the business. Would yes. It be, would it be right in saying yeah. that? Would, would have I what now? No, sorry. Would I be right in saying that if you were if you were in your early to mid thirties back then, you were probably considered oh, a young oh, man. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you were, and and and, and but but it, and and get this. So years of performing still in in the bag, and he wouldn't have been happy uh, not being right in the middle of the thick of things if if things had gone the way the Crockett's wanted them to go. Yeah, yeah, we had a bit of a malfunction there, just to just to cut across, um, not to cut across you, sir, uh, but just there was a little bit of a thing. Basically, what you were saying there was that obviously Rick kind of realized that he knew because I'd asked you the question based on the fact that you know at thirty seven years old, which was Rick at twenty seven years old, which is yourself, um, he thought he had a hell of a lot of wrestling left in him, which he did. Um, you literally had ten years on him. Which you did, but um, obviously at thirty-seven he was still considered basically a young a young guy. But you were obviously in, in, in today's world, it, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a, it, it's just perception. I mean, you know that was nineteen eighty-six, yeah, and two thousand nineteen. As we've been able to look, you know look back on what actually took place, I mean, Rick had stellar performances way into his forties. I mean, yeah. he was still way on top of his game in his 40s, you know. Do you think the likes of Ric Flair and the likes of the Bret Hart, say, of this world, because the two of them are similar kind of workers um, in a lot of ways? Obviously, Bret got the injury, you know, at 40, but, like, even Bret was having some of his best matches at 40, you know? Um, Rick having the yeah. same kind of matches. 
Yeah, and 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 those guys could because of their style of work. You know, it wasn't like today where you know you, you know everything is is so uh, aerobatic and in high spot orientated. To you know, I mean, what what I call a high spot. You know, thirty years ago, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, I, I mean, my gosh, I mean, they, they, I mean, if you went out and grabbed a hold and worked a headlock for ten minutes today, everybody'd be having a heart attack. You know, what's that? You know, what what do you mean? But but it, it, it you know the the style of, of Ricky and and Bret Hart and and uh, Flair lent itself to longevity because you weren't doing things to hurt yourself. You weren't taking ridiculous bumps that, uh, you know, could prematurely end your career. You could take care of yourself a lot better in that style of work than, than some of the extreme, extreme things that, you know, the business has transitioned into. But I mean, even back then, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I talk in this podcast a lot about, um, dynamite kid, who was obviously around back then. Um, I don't know whether you ever had any kind of uh, run-ins with Dynamite Kid or, or, or ever worked him or anything like that, but, you know, I talked to his... I'm quite close with his family, as I always say on this podcast, and, and they love the fact that I mention Dynamite Kid to keep his, his kind of... Uh, keep his name alive, but even Dynamite Kid versus today's style, he had a lot of high spots, but at the same time, he still knew how to work. You know, the the... The, the the matches I guess uh, lended themselves to um, you know uh, being able to slow down at the same time and then pick up the pace if if you know what I mean. Yeah, they could tell a story still, and they made sense. I yeah, mean, exactly. and and Chris Chris Benoit could do the same thing. I mean, he was that same kind of worker. Yeah, because uh, when you when I, when I think about Dynamite Kid. I, I think about Chris because Chris to me was kind of like the evolution of of dynamite. Yeah, and and so all those guys that you know came out of that you know Calgary and and you know this, the Hearts and I mean they they all could go and, and be explosive and do the things, but they still could tell the story while they were doing it, and it wasn't like because frankly, I mean the you know the lucha style work or the Japanese style work. You would do things, even our guys, if they would go to Japan, they would work a totally different style than they would work here in the States. Yeah. Because the people in Japan expected, you know, expected a different style. And it was all, you know, we, and we always would call it like a no-sell style because you do all these things and yeah, they go, ooh, ooh, ooh. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I mean, I laugh, you know, like everybody says, oh, Brock Lesnar. I said, well, yeah, you know, Brock Lesnar, he, but he gives somebody 14 suplexes to try to beat him. You know, I, I pin a guy in 30 seconds with a belly-to-belly suplex, and it, it was devastating. But if I went out there and gave somebody 15 of them, it wouldn't really mean a heck of a whole lot. I agree, yeah. You know, so, so you know, the the, the quantity – as opposed to quality and and what effect it really has, because you know, frankly, I think some of the bumps and some of the things are absolutely stunning, but they but but they're on to the next thing so quickly, your your brain can't absorb it, and it's like watching a, a movie that has so many things going on, you can't really wrap your head around all the action that's just taking place. And they've made wrestling the same way where you can't eat, don't you hardly have time to register it, much less sell it. Cause you're already off into the next spot. Yeah. 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 It's like, um, 
I always liken wrestling to uh, two movies, actually. I'm glad you brought movies up there because I always liken wrestling to two movies. You can watch any number of The Fast and the Furious and you can't remember anything from it. Whereas if you watch a movie like Shawshank Redemption, you remember the whole story, you know? And it, it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of the difference, yeah. I guess, yeah. Well, and, and see, and, and it, it goes back to errors and role models. So, like, like, you know, we talk about people who have influence on you. So, like, one of the people that had a big, huge impact on me was John Wayne, first of all. He was the American cowboy, you know, hero that I grew up watching the Westerns. Sure. And then all of a sudden, this guy pops up on my radar named Bruce Lee. And I think he's the most charismatic, coolest, explosive thing I've ever seen in my life. And he was already dead. When I saw him, I saw him when Enter the Dragon came out in 1973 or something, and he'd already passed away. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 his legend has, you know, like, you know, lived on all these years after the fact. And he, same yeah. thing, you know, he he dies at 32 years old of a brain aneurysm, and and you know, but yet this charismatic, you know, just crazy star. But again, uh, those things, I can remember every fight scene in every one of those movies because it was impactful. It wasn't so much going on, I couldn't wrap my head around it. Yeah. And yeah. and that's kind of what I tried to do. I tried to be impactful. And when people left the arena, I want them to say, you know, that was a crazy show and this, that, and the other, and fire fell from the, sk the skylight, and blah, 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 blah. But... You know, Matt Magnum and Tully tried to kill each other. And that's why, you know, and, I, and that's what I, and I wanted them to think, you know what? No matter what else goes on out there all night long, when they walked away from mine, they said, man, those two guys hated each other. And they were trying to absolutely kill each other. And that, that's what the picture I tried to paint. Yeah, and I mean, you really did paint that picture. And, and like I say, it, it, it's funny because... I believe the art of the old school wrestling is not lost, not 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 for one minute. Because I mean, if you look at NWA now, it's it's obviously trying to bring back some of the glory kind of times, and you can see the the guys that are working hard are trying to bring a little bit of the modern style, but also um, the old school style as well. And I mean, we I had um, Ricky Morton on this pod there, maybe maybe two months ago. And um, he was saying something very, very similar to yourself. Um, the art of selling and the art of being able to kind of, uh, I guess, pace a match, it's uh, it's lost on a lot of the, the new generation. But at the same time, it's not a lost art, art in terms of psychology. Because people, human beings are the same. You know what I mean? Um, I'll give you an example. Oh, yeah. They, they, well... Go ahead. No, no, I'll just give you an example. Um, the AEW now, All Elite Wrestling, the, the, the match of the night that people are talking about was Cody and Dustin. And that was a slow-paced... I was there live for it. it was, uh, yeah, I was there for it live. It was insane how how classic. They, they painted the picture, told that story, yeah. realistic, brutal, yeah. and... And just completely captured everybody in that building, and everybody watched it, you know, on on uh, live stream and everything else. Yep. And the thing, the thing that Eddie told me, Eddie Graham told me, was 
pretend every time you come in that ring that they've never seen you before. Okay. And retell the story, retell the story of who you are and what you do so they establish who you are, who your opponent is, and why you're doing what you're doing. Wow. That's really good, actually. That's that's really really cool. I'm, Pretend they've never seen you before. Because why? Because why? Why would? Why does a heel? You know, a heel. If a heel can't get bested, if a heel can't be be frustrated by by the actions of his opponent, there's no reason for him to heal. If he can just go out there and stomp a mud hole in you, and he's just better than you, and he's just got a loud mouth and he's got an attitude. You know, it makes him a jerk, but that doesn't make him a good heel. Sure. A good heel, a good heel is the one who, you know, who takes advantage of the referee being out of place to get that advantage, to do those things, to do the things that are, are, are just make everybody in the building insane because they can see it and the referee missed it, you know, and, but there's got to be a reason for him to be the heel. And, you know, Tully was always great about that. Rick was great about that. The, 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 it's the heels that don't want to really want to be a heel, they're really just frustrated baby faces. Those are the guys that are hard to, hard to work with. But the guys who really want to be a great heel that help you set the stage and tell that story, there's nothing better than that. That's, that's just, you know, that, that's easy work when everybody's doing their job. Wow. I mean that's that's some amazing advice, and I mean it's it it it's crazy. Like, you know, it, it, like you, you you last wrestled in nineteen eighty six, and that's coming from a guy you know who who was one of the best and the next in line for the NWA title. If if people were to take that kind of advice in modern era, I mean, don't get me wrong, um, you know, times change, and you got to go with the times in some ways. But the human psyche and the human human psychology is still very much the same, which is basically what um, that's the reason I used uh, the, the the Cody and the Dustin match as an example of how the modern crowd can still be engrossed and grabbed by by great storytelling, you know. Um, and, and if you look, if you look at if you look at Triple H, you look at Seth Rollins, you look at AJ Styles. You know, you you look at guys like that, and they can all still do all the crazy things out there, but they still can draw it all back in to make it sense, make sense, yeah. and tell the story while they're doing it. Yeah, and that's the art. Yeah, that is the art. That is the the fundamental. That is the fundamentals right there. Um, actually, let's uh, let's let's have a bit of fun here. Um, let's let's um. You obviously watch some of the some of the modern wrestling still. You obviously have an invested interest in wrestling, oh, yeah. regardless. Um, I gotta ask you because um, this is an ongoing theme on uh, Dynamo's dozen comedy in wrestling. Um, where do you think it fits, and where do you think it doesn't fit? Well, I hate it. <laughs> I I'll be honest with you. I I, agree. I, I, I mean, <laughs> I I. I I think I think you know I think a spot you know I mean Dusty could do could pull you have to be really you've got to be like the Jackie Gleason of wrestling which Dusty was you've got to be so good with your timing that it doesn't take away from people taking you seriously and just to do you know 
things like that we would call a midget high spot, you know, back in the day yeah. to try to make people laugh, you know, to there, there's no place for that to me in the character of a main eventer of a main, uh, of a main event wrestler that's out there to represent the, the heritage and the, the lineage of, you know, what, you know, we've been doing with this, you know, in this industry since the 1900s, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's serious business. And, you know, anybody that thinks that they can go out there and do it, uh, and do it well, uh, you know, my hat's off to them try, but to do what we do well is the most physically challenging sport that I've ever done in my life. And I've done a lot and I've been, in, I've been involved in physical confrontations with, Lots of folks back in the day when I worked in in the the bar business, but you being in there with great big guys, two hundred fifty to three hundred pounds that are in shape, that can go and can do whatever it takes to to capture everybody's imagination it is can be so brutal at times that the average person would think they'd been hit by a train and end up in the hospital somewhere. Yeah, you know, it's not just a little little pretty because. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I I appreciate uh, the artistry of say Flair Steamboat. Great, you know their their match. You know some of their stuff look like something out of a you know out of a a, a movie. It's just so fluid and so this and that and the other. You look at brutality and you look at guys like Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody and. And, and Nikita Koloff when he was 285 pounds and, and guys who would hit you, they could take three steps and be at full speed inside of a ring and, you know, and hit you with a tackle that would, you know, cripple the average person, even though, you know, you know, we're all going in here saying this is to entertain, you know, we made contact. And when you're that big, contact is still contact. Even if you're not trying to take somebody's head off, uh, it's a blow. If you haven't been scooped power slammed by a 300-pound athlete and feel the velocity and the speed with which you hit that canvas, uh, you know you don't know what time it is because sure. that—that's serious business. <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. Um, I mean, going going on that, I'm the same. You know, I'm 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 only a 35 year old man. I'm not the oldest guy in the world, but I, I, I have an old school um, outlook on wrestling, and, and all my listeners notice, and all my friends notice. Um, I don't think there's any place for dick flips in wrestling, um, you know. And, and and I mean, I see Jim Cornette, for example, is a good example, uh, getting called out for not uh, lending himself to the ways of the modern world of wrestling. Um, people are talking about, oh well, you know, wrestling's changing. Wrestling's not really changing. A dick flip doesn't make sense in wrestling ever. Full stop. You know what I mean? No. It's um I think it yeah. pisses I think it pisses on the people like Harley Race, like yourself, people that bled and gave everything to wrestling, people like Dynamite Kid. Um it it, it really just shits all over that and I think if um, people don't get that, well, in my opinion, uh, they can really fuck off because I don't really care what their opinions are, you know? I care about what guys like well, you think on wrestling. Guys um, that have, have, have literally, I guess, um, 
you know, lived and died for the for the business. So, well, it's respect, and and, and yeah. a lot, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this, we have to, you know, thank for kayfabe being dead. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was the closest knit group of people in the world. Uh, yeah, in 1985, in 1985, just like it had been in all the years previous. You know what happened after you know the kayfabe broke and and you know Vince said you know we're not a we're not a sports you know even a sports business we're 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 sports entertainment we're we're not we no longer wanted to hear it called professional wrestling we're we're sports entertainers we're superstars we're this that and other yeah you know, I I get why it happened I, I understand. The, the premise and not one have to deal with all the athletic commissions and sure. the this and the that, sure. the other, yeah. and make it more marketable to a greater audience and yeah. whatnot. You know, I, I got all that. But the respect piece of one another and the history, and he, with the evolution, I mean, I talked to guys like Ricochet, and, you know, he's as high a flyer as you're ever going to see in the industry. I mean, he's yeah. Ray Mysterio. And Bruce Lee all wrapped into one and an Avenger on top of that. For sure. But still respects the old school, still can go out there and work a, a match uh, with no high flying if, if the occasion called for and, and, and gets it. But there's a, there's a whole new line of guys that, frankly, uh, we wouldn't have let in the, in the locker room 30 years ago. And, you know, they, they probably had a mud hole stomped in them, <laughs> you know, and, and, and don't ever come back kind of thing. So you know, it, it's you hard to swallow. Books. It's hard to swallow some of it. It is, it, it is, and it, but, it, but it is, you know, it is part of what you have to deal with in today's world on a hostile level. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I agree with you. And I mean, I, I've no problem, you know, the likes of the Kenny Omegas and, and the young books and stuff like that, when they're going out and they're doing, you know, Hadoukens and their, you know, their opponents are falling because of this energy ball that they throw out because they like video games. I don't care if they're, you know, vice presidents of, of AEW and stuff like that. These guys are given senior positions. Um, and, and, you know, they are influencing the fans and what professional wrestling is supposed to be. But professional wrestling is what we talked about earlier, and I'm going to quote something that you said to me earlier. Pretend they've never seen you before. You know what I mean? That's, to me, that's exactly what stands out in my mind from you talking to me on this, on, on this, uh, on this podcast, you know? Well, I try to talk straight, and I try to give it the way, you know, I, I, that I, the passion I still have for it is that, you know, Cody is my godson. Yes, not many, not a lot of people. That's not you know well known, but I mean, but it, it's and, and it's not so much about Cody. It was about Dusty and I. Right? Okay. Dusty and I were we were real brothers in in life, okay. uh, and and you know he gave me the greatest honor that anybody's ever said, and that you know he made had made a quote that you know he would trust me with the lives of his children, and that's how close we were. Wow. So so Cody you know, is a byproduct of his dad and his, and his mom, Michelle, and he got in and, and, and has got talents and skill sets that aren't even challenged yet. 
Cody's and the best in the business a, right and now. They, and, and they've got a vi- they've got a vision to do something that we won't really see until those shows start airing in October. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see because doing doing house shows and doing episodic television is two different things. I agree. Yeah, one hundred percent. And 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 they've got Jim Ross with them, who I respect tremendously, and I know what a good uh, mentor and guide he can be for them. And and uh, uh, Dean Malenko is is working with them, and and uh, Dean's old school, solid as a rock. You know, good guide. Uh, so there's good people, you know, uh, in in the group uh, of that talent. I'm just very interested, as is the world, to see the product and see what they what they come out with. Because we're all rooting for them. I mean, I want them to be a winner. I want WWE to be a winner. I want to see the NWA come out with a show Me and too. do something well. Me I want. I like to see. I like to see Impact get off the hunting and fishing channel and get on something. <laughs> you know, it, you know, get on something that actually would have a viewership. You know, and you know, and and, and Ring of Honor, same thing. I mean, I'd love to see five, six good, strong promotions out there showing their product, making a competition to see who can. You know who can get the most people watching and make it the most exciting and 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 drive this thing you know into the next era, rather than just you know one company, uh, you know having a monopoly on it because competition is good for the boys, it's good for the business, it's good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, I, I was talking to a friend of mine um, only the other week, and I was talking about. There's so much wrestling now. Wrestling is 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 coming back to uh to a period where, um, it's huge. Not just in the states, it, in Europe, where I am based in Ireland, um, we 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 have one of the biggest promotions. You know what I mean? In Europe, um, every time they 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 put an event on, they're selling out over the top wrestling, they're selling out nonstop, um, something for everybody. The UK is always going. The UK has had a resurgence as well. Um, I think Europe itself as well has also had a, a resurgence. Germany, Belgium, um, you know, everywhere is, is kind of thriving, in the sense that wrestling is now a big thing again. And I think it's, um, I think it's it, it it's a case now where, especially in the states. Where instead of trying to be national with the whole kind of internet um, phenomenon, that you can kind of have shows on a on a on a level where you can watch it on a, I guess on a, a national and a regional level, guys should be kind of concentrating on their own territories, especially the smaller companies um, than than the one, you know, than the ones that you've just mentioned. They should be concentrating mm-hmm. on their own territories. And start building stars the way it was back in the day. I think that's how we can make wrestling have the old school feel and, and start producing stars on a on a territorial level. Um, would you agree? Absolutely, and that's yeah, and and that's where you'll have instead of a couple hundred people, yeah, you know, making a living on it. You can you can get back to where in the eighties there was a thousand professional wrestlers in the world making a living wrestling. Yeah, making a living, not wannabes, not breaking in, not down the road. A thousand guys across the world were seasoned professional guys that this is how they made their living. And it needs to be 
that opportunity needs to be there again because if not, where is the next where is the next run of stars going to come from? And we found that we found that out the minute you know the Crockett's and 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 uh, the WWE you know ran off all the territories. There was no proving grounds for guys to go learn the ropes and come out to be that next big star that nobody had heard of because we, we ran off all the opportunity for them to learn it. <laughs> yeah. We killed it. <laughs> well, listen, as we, as how, we, how smart was that? Well, yeah, that it was really smart to be honest. Yeah. Um, I guess three, three more questions. We're going to do a little quick fire around before we, before we finish up. Cause I know you're a busy man, seven kids to feed. You got to make sure they're all they're all intact, and I appreciate the time that you've given me today. Um, You're welcome. Thank you so much, sir. Um, I'm going to ask you three questions. First one is: Who's your favorite opponent of all time? Tully Blanchard. Tully Blanchard, hands down, yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, who is the greatest heel of all time? That's hard. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? That's hard. That's hard. I mean, the 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 guy who had it all was obviously Rick. I mean, Rick was he had it all. So, yeah, it, it was it would have to be Rick. And then this is going to be a tough one too. Who is the greatest of all time? Just the greatest of all time in general. Yeah, it was Rick. Yeah, no, nobody, nobody. Can even Ric Flair on his best day, which he had his best days for a long time. Nobody could out. Nobody could out talk him. Nobody could outlive the gimmick twenty four seven like he did, and and nobody was more entertaining from bell time to bell time. I mean, he just he was the epitome of what uh, you know everybody wanted to be. Uh, he, he was the measuring stick, and. Uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody. I don't. I don't think anybody that really knows the business could argue it. I mean, only there's different guys out there that would say, "Oh, he did this. He only did that." Well, I look at, you know, the, it was before the internet. It was before everybody knew what you did in every town. Yeah, he did a lot of routine things and whatnot, but nobody gave their whole entire life to the business like Rick did, and had the amount amount of success he had to go along with it. Okay. And then one last question. It's not a question, actually. It's more, have you got one good rib story for me? Oh my goodness! You know, I, you, you're not going to believe this, probably. But <laughs> I honestly, I was kind of, you know, I didn't ever mess with people like in the in the dressing rooms and in the back and and whatnot because I didn't I didn't get any joy out of teasing anybody and consequently everybody kind of respected my space and knew you know that i probably since you you know if you if you can give a good rib to somebody you need better receive one right well i'm not really good at receiving receiving them so i didn't have to be like on the bad end of that (laughs) (laughs) you know i didn't have people you know like you know super gluing my bag to the ground and you know doing messing with my stuff and everything because you know they really didn't know whether I might just, 
you know, go off. <laughs> and, and I did, and I, and I, and, and I, but I, I was respectful, you know, of the guys around me. You know? So, I, I mean, I, 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 I certainly was around pranksters and guys that, I mean, when I first broke in, you know, when I was driving up down the road, Jimmy Garvin and, uh, you know, you know, we had to stop a bajillion times after you drank about 30 beers, you had to pee every 15 minutes. And, uh, I had the guys lead me off on the side of the road in my own car one time for a little while. But, uh, but, but generally speaking, you know, we, I mean, we always had a good time. We were like a big giant family. And we, you know, at one time there was 200 of us working for Jim Crockett Promotions, and we were running three towns a night. And when we all got together, you can imagine what that party was like. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it, it was just, it was just, uh, you know, the greatest family, greatest bunch of guys you could ever want to been around with. And uh, you know, honestly, uh, that's what I missed the most about it was, you know, it, you know, I, I missed out on the time spent with uh, guys that I love, just like they were my, you know, brothers or sisters or in-laws, outlaws, whatever you want to call them. Uh, we were just a big family. That's awesome, dude. Well, look, I got to really thank you again for your time today. Um, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure um, to speak with you and, and for you to speak so freely with me too. Um, I really, I really respect that. And uh, thank you so much, Magnum TA. As I say, you'll always be one of my favorite wrestlers and uh, the name will never be lost on this podcast I can assure you thank you my friend I appreciate it thank you sir well that about wraps it up for this week's episode of Dynamo's Dozen I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have um, it was an absolute pleasure talking to one of my heroes and uh, hopefully we will get to talk to Magnum again uh, maybe maybe in a, a couple of months time after some more of the uh the AEW shows in terms of how their their TV shows run and and and, uh, and maybe talk talk about uh, how he feels their their product is evolving and and what way it's it's kind of I guess um, transitioning as it makes its its debut into the into the world of professional wrestling and goes pretty much head to head with the with the top dogs in WWE. So I hope you guys enjoyed it this week. I have. Um, don't forget. Next week, I have a very, very special interview. That's right, third time is a charm. Alexander Dean will be joining me on the podcast on Dynamo's Dozen. Third time is a charm. The files are not lost. It's going to happen. There's going to be no controversy. It's going to be an amazing episode. So uh, don't you dare miss it. And until then, all that's left for me to say is, guys and gals, Dynamo is over and out. Love you all.